Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 32B, an interview on presidential mourning and the death of FDR with Lindsay Chervinsky and Matthew Costello. I'm excited to welcome Lindsay Chervinsky and Matthew Costello to the show today. Lindsay is a presidential historian, the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, and she is the co-host of the SMU Center for Presidential Histories podcast, The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. Matthew is the vice president of the David M. Rubenstein National Center for White House History and author of the Property of the Nation, George Washington's Tomb, Mount Vernon, and the Memory of the First President. Together, they are the co-editors of the new book, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. Today, we're going to talk about what we can learn from the changing way we as Americans have mourned our presidents, and in particular, we'll take a deeper dive into the death of FDR. Uh, Matthew, thank you for coming on, and Lindsay, thank you for coming back. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, Kenny. Of course. So I'd love to start with what inspired your interest in this topic of presidential mourning? Well, for for me, uh, that was really, in a way, the focus of my first book, Property of the Nation. And in that, I explored how Americans mourned and commemorated and remembered George Washington throughout the 19th century. So I've always had a thing for the dark arts, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay, Lindsay, how did you get drawn into this? Uh, so I've always, you know, of course, been fascinated in the presidency. My first book was on the presidency. That's kind of what I do. But I think this particular angle started in 2018 when George H.W. Bush passed away. And there was this incredible outpouring of sort of grief and, and pieces about his legacy and who he was as a person. And really overwhelmingly positive about how he was kind and humble and had a sense of humor. And while I think most of those things were true, some of the memorials about him came from people that kind of made me raise an eyebrow, like, huh, wasn't expecting that person to say that. And it seemed to me that people were reflecting more our our moment, that he was the opposite of the person that was currently in the White House. And mm-hmm. so he represented an older, gentler version of politics in the United States that people were hungering for. And that actually said more about who we were than necessarily about who he was. And I was wondering if it was true that that was the case at other moments, that how the American people responded to the death of a president, said a lot more about what was happening than the president themselves. And then Matt, Matthew and I conspired to come up with a whole <laughs> volume on the subject. And, you know, it, it might be easy for folks to think, you know, remembering the, the George H.W. Bush funeral and the whole reaction, as you describe, that this must be how presidents have always been mourned. You know, they lay in state in the Capitol, they're taken to their place of burial, everywhere the body goes, people turn out to pay their respects. But was it always this way? And, and Matthew, you know, you <laughs> mentioned your whole book is about George Washington. So when George Washington dies, you know, December 14th, 1799, he's the first president to die, former president, I should say. How did people react? And was there any discussion or debate around how this death should be recognized? Well, we have a, a, an excellent chapter in the book, the first chapter by Mary Thompson, who 
I mean, in my opinion, probably the most knowledgeable person living about George Washington and Mount Vernon. And she writes a, a nearly minute by minute account of Washington's death, uh, the aftermath, the family trying to make arrangements, but then also how they immediately become overwhelmed by, uh, you know, mm. neighbors, local committees from Alexandria, Freemasons, um, clergymen. I mean, all these different groups all of a sudden now what Washington had asked for was a small private funeral mm. uh, has now turned into a public event. And uh, that is replicated across the country when the news of Washington's death happens is that there are mock funerals, mock processions. And, you know, this is the first time that a president or former president has passed away. And I think this sets the stage then for how future presidents will have, a, I think, probably more on the national scale when it's somebody in office. That's that it is sort of the early mold of that. Uh, we'll see something similar with Harrison and Zachary Taylor. But really, then I would say Abraham Lincoln uh, and the rituals that come out of that process right. is what's really sets the stage for, I think, presidential mourning and state funerals moving forward. But I think what's interesting is that from the very beginning, there are questions about whether or not this is the right way to do it. So right. Americans really, I think, had an overwhelming sense of grief and loss when Washington died because he was such an important symbolic presence, even though he was no longer in office. And so that outpouring was genuine and the desire to participate in these rituals were real and felt deeply, but they went on for quite some time. And uh, after several months, Abigail Adams in particular started to to make some notes about whether or not that really made sense for a republic to be mourning one person who was a citizen who was supposed to be just like anyone else mm. on such a grand scale. And so from the very beginning, there has been sort of like, what is the appropriate role of these rituals and ceremonies in a republic? And the president is, of course, a very powerful person, but once they leave, they're supposed to just be a citizen. And how well right. do we actually adhere to that? So like months was it really like months of mourning for George Washington. Wow. Months of mourning. And partly that's because of, you know, things took a while to, to <laughs> share news. And so, fair, you know, fair, it was yeah. a delayed process. <laughs> yeah. And then his birthday is, of course, in February. And yeah. so it kind of got all wrapped into his birthday celebrations, which the Adams is also objected to. And um, so, you know, I think it was sort of a, a, the timing of it as well. But yes, it was a long process. I'm curious, how does this compare to other early presidents? Like, was this just a George Washington phenomenon? Does it say something large about American society? And uh, in particular, what jumps to mind is, if I remember right, don't Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both end up dying like on the same day, on the 4th of July of all days. So I'm curious if, if that led to another like, spasm of, of interest and mourning and reaction. I mean, talk about a great way to go out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you <laughs> could pick it, well. <laughs> uh, you know, the 50th anniversary of uh, the, the declaration, I mean, that's a good time to do it. Um, you know, I, I would say that there wasn't as much of a national response to those deaths. I mean, even though, you know, we're talking about 50 years later, we're talking about uh, they are amongst the small surviving group of the founding generation still alive. Uh, some people take their deaths as an omen, uh, you know, of, of bad <laughs> yeah. things to come. But, you know, <laughs> if I, only they lived forever. <laughs> right. If only, that was, if only that was possible. Um, you know, I think, you know, Washington really is. It's sort of the first national response 
to a president or former president. Uh, you know, John Adams and and Thomas Jefferson lived long enough. You know, they lived through their presidencies and beyond to take on different symbolic meanings for different parts of the country, for different political parties. And so I think that idea of a national memory of those of those figures was fragmented. Um, and, and that's part of the reason why you see the responses varying so much by region, by politics, by uh, religious groups. So uh, I don't know. I, Lindsay, what do you think? I would agree with that. There were in Massachusetts, there were sort of local things that occurred to mourn Adams. There were people that came to the Adams house to pay their respects and militias and groups that came and sort of paraded and marched. And I think there was some of that in Charlottesville, much to Jefferson's horror as well. <laughs> but, um, and there were certainly written pieces nationally reflecting on sort of the creepiness that they both died on the same day and 50 years later, and that did not escape anybody. And so, and, and as Matt said, sort of like, what does that mean for the nation and, and where are we on the brink of things? And so there were certainly observations nationally, but not the same sort of north to south, coast to coast, well, coast to however far west of the nation went at the time, right. um, sort of celebrations <laughs> and mourning rituals of their death in the way there was for Washington. The east bank of the Mississippi is totally a coast, right? That that qualifies. Yes, <laughs> coast to coast. Yeah. You are right. Co- water to water. Water to water. Um, so jumping around a bit, you know, I, I mentioned one of the things that happened for George W. Bush's lay in state in the Capitol. Now, obviously, that couldn't have happened for George Washington. Capital, like Washington, D.C. wasn't even a place yet, really. Uh, and, and the first person of all people, I looked up, who was the first person to get laying in state? And of course, it was five-time presidential hopeful Henry Clay in 1852, which kind of made me chuckle. Of course, it would be him. But the first president that I saw who got this laid in state treatment was Abraham Lincoln in 1865. And you mentioned earlier, Abraham Lincoln is when a lot of ceremony changes, a lot of, like, like there's this big moment around his death. He's the first president to be assassinated. How did that hit the American people? the first presidential assassination coming right at the end of the Civil War. Well, um, it, Martha Hodes talks about this in the volume, uh, and this is also predicated off of her previous award-winning book, Morning Lincoln, where she details how Lincoln's assassination in the aftermath really cut across political, racial, religious, geographic boundaries. And what we see is that this is not a moment of bringing necessarily people together uh, to celebrate or to commemorate. But in fact, in some ways, it inflames uh, the very same things, the very same groups that were involved in leading up to and fighting in the Civil War. And I think for most Americans by 1865, you know, Abraham Lincoln was the president. Uh, He was a respected leader. People had hope. Uh, for what was lying ahead with the with the war winding down, and to have him tragically cut down that way uh, was was it was shocking. I mean, it was traumatic. Um, and I think uh, you know beyond the actual assassination itself, Lincoln's cabinet, uh, other government officials saw this as an opportunity to try to use Lincoln's assassination to create greater political cohesion uh, amongst Northern states. I mean, this is why they draw out, uh, you know, they, they take Lincoln, they put him on a train, 
They send him back essentially around the same inaugural route. He visits 10 major cities. His body, we're talking his about. Body is, his body is put on display. Not the vampire version. Not the vampire, no. And uh, I mean, and all of this, I mean, through all of this, nobody really asks Mary Lincoln what she would like or how wow. she wants these things to take place. I mean, all this is really sort of orchestrated by, you know, Lincoln's cabinet. And wow. There's a few different reasons for this. One, I think, is to show people that Lincoln made the ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I think another another one is, uh, you know, there are people who want to make, uh, you know, the Confederacy and Southerners suffer, and they want mm-hmm. people to see what happened to Lincoln. Mm-hmm. But also, they really want to foster that that idea that Lincoln and the Republican Party delivered the country from the jaws of defeat, saved the Union. And that this is a way also to encourage people to continue to put their political support towards the Republican Party. So there are a number of different and also, of course, pay respects. I mean, it doesn't always have to just be about paying respects. There can be other motivations and uh, and other things at play when you have these long, drawn out, uh, weeks long mourning period where people get to see and actually experience Lincoln's body. I just want to footstomp one element of what Matt said, which is that. This was the first assassination and the timing at which it came, it was sort of like the highest of the high moments and then the huge crash. And that sort of shock and surprise that no president had been assassinated, which was relatively rare for other forms of government. I mean, political violence is a very human condition. And so the trauma of that compounded with the fact that he was shot on Friday, which was Good Friday. He died Mm -hmm. on Saturday. And then the next day was Easter. Mm -hmm. There was this overwhelming, I think, terror and fear about what would come next. But the connotations Mm -hmm. and the parallels to the religious symbolism of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and Abraham Lincoln being assassinated for our national sins Mm -hmm. just kind of gave it extra resonance. And so I think there are probably few other moments in our nation's history that have had that sort of dramatic effect. And so partly because it was for the first, but it has really, I think, stood the test of time. Did any new traditions come out of this? I mean, certainly we talked about laying in state. Not every parent's going to get that, but nobody got before and what happened after. Um, I don't know if every president's corpse gets the train ride around the, the country, but uh, you know, what, what new tradition, how did this change the way Americans react to presidential deaths? If it did. Well, I mean, prior to there had been two other presidents who had died while in office. Uh, and, and those took on, I think, similar looking rituals as the Lincoln one, because it happened uh, in Washington, D.C., right? You have William Henry Harrison in 1841 and Zachary Taylor in 1850. They're both uh, sitting presidents of the United States. Of course, they're not assassinated. Uh, more likely, they probably die as a result of either uh, a gastrointestinal illness for both or some kind of exposure that led to a serious ailment that eventually both of them succumbed to. And, uh, you know, what they did for them was they, ha- they had a, a service at the White House in the East Room, uh, they were uh, transported. Actually, in, in, you know, in those days, they couldn't necessarily get the bodies back to the family homes, so they had to put them in temporary vaults. Uh, and I think they were at Congressional in, in D.C. And then you would have to wait until the spring, <laughs> when the weather was a little bit warmer, 
Okay. And uh, and then you would send send them on their way to uh, Ohio and then uh-huh. Kentucky. So uh, I guess, you know, with Lincoln in particular, the advent of the train uh, becomes critical, not only for, you know, he takes the train riding into Washington, D.C. for his inauguration, and he'll take the train, uh, his body, and along with his son Willie's body, uh, will leave mm. Washington, D.C., because Willie dies in 1862 in the White House. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he, he comes into D.C. on a train, and he leaves D.C. on a train, and uh, that's also a nice connection with George H.W. Bush. Uh, we, right, we talk about, the train we talk home. About, we talk about it in the book how, uh, you know, trains kind of vanish from presidential morning rituals. And uh, Bush 41 brings him back because he's always had this lifelong fascination with trains. <laughs> but I think in terms of, you know, your question about, like, what does Lincoln start that is yeah. repeated afterwards? I think that what's unique about Lincoln thus far was that because of the train, he was able to have more of a national experience. Like people were able to go and pay their respects and see the, the casket as it was moving on the train. And mm-hmm. prior to that, where the, wherever the president happened to be, people may have mourned. And, and if they were close, they would come if they could for the services or f- for the ceremonies. But there wasn't an inclusion of the entire United States in the same way. Now, obviously Lincoln didn't get all the way out West, but I think that that started that process. Nor did he um, go to the and- South. <laughs> Mostly North. <laughs> this is true. Um, so I think that, but that, that concept that there should be some sort of inclusion of at least some of the country was yeah. something that was adopted and embraced by other presidents as well going forward. So next, I would love to jump to FDR, a president who, like Lincoln, died in the final months of a war he would be remembered for winning. Uh, But before we get to his death, I'd love to talk about his illness. FDR died of natural causes just months after his fourth inaugural. Was his death a surprise? Would would it have been a surprise to him? You know, was it a surprise to his colleagues, to the nation, or... Did anybody know how sick this guy was? I think David Wilner, who's the author of our chapter on FDR and who has written a number of books on FDR as well, does a really good job of trying to answer this question, which is kind of impossible to answer because we know that some of the communications that took place were not in writing. And so obviously the Mm, evidentiary mm, mm. record that we have is somewhat limited it seems like the doctors had a pretty good sense that he was in bad shape. His heart was in very poor condition. And they told him that he had a heart condition, like that he was aware that he wasn't feeling well, obviously had had some some moments. But FGR and Eleanor probably didn't know the extent of how bad it was or how close he was to finally succumbing. Yeah. I don't think it was a huge surprise to them or to her when it did happen, although maybe the exact moment was a bit of a surprise. And to most American people, if they had been observing how he looked over time, he would they would have seen the aging process, which of course, happens to <laughs> happens to all presidents, even if they don't have a heart condition. Anyone who's yeah. seen the grain pictures can see the the cost that presidents have to bear for for having this position. Yeah, I think for American people, they were surprised because he hadn't shared this information about his heart. There wasn't the same sort of like you know the president goes and does their annual physical and then shares the report of it. That practice really wasn't in place. So the American people were surprised. 
I don't know how surprised Eleanor was, but she certainly didn't know how close to death yeah. he was. Do you think that's a fair assessment, Matt? Yeah, you know, the David talks about the the team of doctors sort of going back and forth about the president's heart condition and they can't really seem to reach a consensus. They know that it's 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 bad. Uh, but they're also a little bit unsure about how much they're supposed to share with the president. Um, you know, what do they share? How do they share it? Unfortunately, we don't know for certain whether or not that message was shared with the president. Uh, you know, he had changed. He was taking new medications. He changed his diet, uh, you know, more exercise, all the types of things that, you know, doctors would typically recommend. But I think the shock, the shocking part really was that, you know, people had grown so accustomed to Franklin Roosevelt as president. It was just hard to even fathom somebody else being president. You know, he'd been president for 12 years, you know, through the Great Depression, through the 30s, into World War II. It, for many people, he was the only president they knew. And, uh, and, and so that, I think, was most shocking uh, to the American public when they found out he had died. We talked about how this was a surprise. I'm curious, do, do we see any evidence... Did the nation feel like deceived by his death? Because, you know, it's one thing for a president to be killed and you get mad as killer, but to have someone run for your election and campaign on, I'm healthy, look at me. And, you know, he did some events. He like goes around open air cars, you know, show how healthy he is, they can handle this. And then he dies. I could imagine that some people might feel like been been deceived about the health and that that might impact how the nation mourns him. So was there any sense of that or... You know, how, how did that play into the morning of FDR? Well, I, I think the American people didn't necessarily express a sense of betrayal because they didn't know that he had had this previous information. I think they certainly felt that they had been robbed, especially because the war was so close to ending. And there was a sense that, you know, he had gotten so close and sort of a, a, that compounded the sadness. I'm sure that there were some officials in the Democratic Party who maybe had some less uh, yeah. <laughs> pleasant things to say um, and recognized that it would obviously change the dynamic of going going forward with the war, with politics, with everything, because he had been such a, an institution and a powerhouse. But I don't think there was that sense of betrayal just because the information wasn't widely known. And I think, uh, you know, because Franklin had already pushed the two-term limit precedent, you know, he had, he had already <laughs> yeah. eclipsed that. Um, you know, I think most Americans saw his decision to run again as he's a leader committed to seeing this thing through. Like every, everybody has made all of these sacrifices, not only on the battlefield, but on the home front. He's been our leader. He's been the one encouraging us, pushing us on, uh, you know, commanding the war from the White House. And I think most, you know, and you can look at the electoral results. I mean, he he wins uh, in 1944, in yet another landslide, the American people want him to con- they want him to continue to serve as commander in chief. Now, did they feel betrayed? I mean, I think Lindsay's point is probably spot on that they felt that it it's just seems so unfair that Franklin Roosevelt would do all these things for the American people and not be there to celebrate, you know, victory in Europe Day with them. How was he mourned? What are it about the country? And especially, like, how does it contrast to some of these earlier guys we talked about? How is it different from Lincoln? How is it different from Washington? I think in some ways, FDR's passing was probably most similar to Washington's because FDR sort of had that 
father-like status. As Matt Mm. said, he had been Mm. in office for so long that, you know, for most generations of at least young adults, he was the president they remembered. And so few other people have had that kind of intense symbolism. And Washington during his life was already referred to as the father of the country. So I think that in some ways that parallel, he's probably the only one that kind of gets close to that. And so the morning really, I think, in a lot of ways was very personal because FDR was one of the first who made an effort to really communicate with the American people in a in a informal and personal sort of way. His fireside chats had been, of course, legendary, and they were the first of a president to really use that medium to, to go into people's homes in a very sort of private setting and have that sort of communication. And so they felt as though they knew him and, and he he knew them. And I think that that sort of like personal loss was maybe only replicated with Washington. And then I think people felt that with Lincoln too, but unique in that sense. And then it sort of had those parallels. Yeah. And I think uh, kind of connecting it back to our previous points about trains, you know, uh, FDR dies in uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, and Mm -hmm. they put, they put his body on a train and they bring it back to Washington, DC. And then on to Hyde Park for burial. Now what's interesting about that is FDR says that he's fine with doing a funeral service at the White House, but he does not want to lay in state because he thinks that his funeral should be rather simplistic. It's a time of war and uh, this is not where resources should be going. So even even in his final act, you know, he's still thinking about putting the country first, putting the war first. And so as his train is moving, you know, from Georgia up to Washington, D.C., up to New York, people are lining the train tracks and, and in train stations to see, you know, his casket passing by. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a national morning, a national experience. Lincoln doesn't really have that because, you know, he was fighting a war against the southern half of the country for, for four years. So people didn't have, I think, necessarily the same uh, reaction to the falling of a commander in chief. Uh, so yeah, I would say Washington and, uh, and FDR have more parallels, uh, and that, you know, the use of the train, I think is similar though, between Lincoln and FDR, but FDR truly does trace more of a national route because, you know, it goes from South to mid Atlantic to North. And, And so to tip my hand and look ahead a bit at who's next in the presidential order, FDR did change his vice president in 1944, right before this last term, right before he dies. The very progressive Henry A. Wallace was dropped from the ticket by the party, and a more moderate Harry S. Truman was elected VP instead. I'm curious, do we have any sense, did FDR's health play a role in this? You know, like, was there any amount of an open secret among party leaders that, you know, we don't think FDR is going to make another term, another four years. We're, we're picking the next president when we pick this VP, and that influences who we want to pick. Do we have any sense of that? I don't think so, because they pick someone who is so relatively inexperienced, <laughs> and <laughs> not to be mean to German, um, who I think, you know, really uh, stood up to the demands of the job really quite extraordinarily. And, you know, we've really come to, I think, appreciate what he did as president more in the last couple of decades. He's received a little bit of a a revisit in the historical study and, and rightfully so. 
but because they picked someone who was, you know, relatively unknown, relatively inexperienced, and then I think perhaps the most telling piece, he was kept at such arm's distance from FDR. He famously, of course, didn't know about the atomic bomb project right. until like a week into his presidency because he never received any sort of security information. He was never included in war planning. I think that had there been a broader sense of what was happening at least some of FDR's cabinet members could have done a better of job about bringing Truman along, or at least making sure he wasn't so unaware of what was happening <laughs> yeah. uh, when he came into office. And so my sense is that there that wasn't part of the plan. But Matt, do you have a different understanding? Well, I mean, I, I know that the a number of the leaders in the Democratic Party were concerned about not only FDR running for a fourth term, but also concerned about his health. And so uh, when they get to the convention that year, you know, there is some delegate wrangling uh, to figure out who, you know, if it is Henry Walls or if it is somebody else, somebody who would be more palatable because remember the, uh, you know, the new deal coalition has changed a lot. And with that change, means trying to find somebody who sort of sat and checks all the boxes. And I think Truman was one of those, one of those figures that, oh, well, you know, he's, he's not a Soviet union loving liberal, like, uh, you know, and like Wallace and, you know, he, he comes from Missouri, so he's a Southerner. And so, I mean, they, they go, they go through the list and, uh, you know, Truman has been supportive of the war. He's been supportive of the president. He checks all the boxes and, uh, but to Lindsay's point, I mean, you're picking somebody who's, you know, he's a Senator, but you know, he, he doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Uh, certainly, I mean, almost, I mean, he, he fought, he fought in world war one, but he doesn't have much right. foreign policy experience. I mean, so, you know, Truman was not prepared for that role. Uh, right. so I, I don't know if, that, I mean, maybe that lends itself to the explanation that FDR didn't know how bad his health was. You know, yeah. maybe maybe it lends itself to that, that FDR thought Truman Truman could be helpful to the administration. He would be helpful to the party, but that FDR intended to see us through the war and to get through a fourth term. Yeah, you know, it's funny when when I read about Truman and I compared him to all the other presidents, one thought that came to mind is compared to everyone else, he is the late bloomer of the group, <laughs> but luckily he bloomed. Um so and I'm curious to dive more into what you mentioned about how FDR didn't tell him anything. What is that just like normal, you know, at those days, VPs not involved, uh, you know, as John Adams had once said, this is like the most worthless position ever invented. Or was there anything more? Was there any further reason to why FDR didn't tell Truman anything? Yeah, Adams was not Adams was the first, but certainly not the last vice president to bemoan the position being the worst one in Washington, which I think it is still the worst position in Washington <laughs> yeah. today, uh, just because it's impossible. It, it's utterly impossible. Um, so until FDR, the office of the vice presidency didn't exist. So the job was literally to have a pulse. And there yeah. were a lot of times when, frankly, there wasn't a vice president. And we yeah. got pretty lucky as a country that something in those moments didn't happen to the president because then we would have been in for an interesting, dramatic moment. So I don't think it was all that unusual that Truman didn't necessarily play a role. Now, some vice presidents have known more. So I'm, you know, 
up to my eyeballs in John Adams stuff right now. And Jefferson seemed to have a pretty good grasp of what was going on, mostly because he was feeding that the secrets to the French. Um, but uh, treason aside, he was pretty well versed <laughs> about what was happening. And yeah. so I think it might depend on the president about how much information they knew, mm. but it's not like they were participating in briefings. It was because of other personal relationships and FDR always kept his vice president's, really sort of at a distance and so never was really no exception because he, he was like the third I vp i think if i remember right. yeah matt that's right fdr kind of just like didn't want anything to do with them is that correct yeah i mean and also historically you know vice presidents had just sort of been stuck with presidents uh you know they, they weren't really <laughs> it's not like they really had much of a relationship prior to uh sometimes it was just the way that the conventions worked out or the campaigns worked out and uh, and just historically, you know, they had had that role presiding over the Senate. But right. aside from that, you know, I think even when you get into the 20th century, they're still paying the vice president the same salary as the other cabinet heads, whereas the president is making much more money. I mean, it's very obvious that who's in charge. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, when you're I think also when you're president of the United States, uh, you know, you're relying on your executive branch heads and secretaries to carry out your agenda, carry out your policies. The vice president is the vice president. Uh, so uh, only later do we see the vice president sort of growing, the vice presidency growing into its into its own, where the president relies more on the vice president, uh, maybe sends them abroad for different uh, international engagements or summits. But that yeah. is a much more recent phenomenon. Yeah. Are there any lessons to be found in FDR's death? Uh, anything that later presidents learned, like maybe we should tell the VP what's going on or something like that? Well, I think that lesson is certainly applicable. I don't think that FDR's immediate successors followed it because I don't <laughs> think the the, <laughs> the first vice president that actually had any significant role was Walter Mondale under Carter. Mm. And he and Carter had a relationship and he uh, was the first that sort of was a bit of a partner. And then you started to see sort of towards the end of the 20th century, the vice president taking on more responsibility and actually serving as kind of an assistant, so to speak. Although I, I argue that Dick Cheney was the first one to really revolutionize mm. what that position could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that from an American security standpoint from a good of the nation, that is an important lesson that if the person in the number two position is supposed to take over the second the president, you know, cannot do that job, then that person has to be equipped to do so. Uh, We just have been a little slow on the uptake with that lesson. Anything you want to add, Matthew? I think one of the lessons I learned is, uh, uh, you know, listen to your doctors and, uh, Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're going to smoke, smoke in moderation. Uh, you know, <laughs> these, Take some these, new uh, time. <laughs> hey, you know what? Pre- presidents are people too, right? Yeah. So they have their own habits. They have their own tendencies. And, uh, and they have their own health issues. And yeah. I think those are all things that, you know, we can't just look at them and see them as statues or monuments. But these are people. Uh, and they have these types of other health issues that they need to be aware of. And, you know, and we believe as the American people, we should be aware of, but I think what this, I think what this volume demonstrates is that's typically not the case. And, um, and that also, I think tells us more about what we expect of the presidents, uh, but also sort of the accessibility and secrecy that comes with 
being the president. After FDR, when you look at the presidents who come later, the deaths who come later, the periods of mornings that come later, are there any that stand out or are notable? You know, I mean, one that certainly comes to mind, JFK was, was a big one. Is there anything you'd like to say about what that death or any others really told us about a moment in American history? You take you take JFK, I will take Reagan. Go. Okay. So, uh, you know, Lindsay and I were talking about this the other day. And, uh, you know, obviously the chapter in the book is, is excellent. Uh, Sharon does a fantastic job detailing what Kennedy meant to the African-American community after his assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he meant to the American people. I mean, this this was another tragic assassination. A, a young president with a young family uh, cut down. There's not really an explanation for it, but what she details is how African Americans viewed this as you know Kennedy essentially being a martyr for civil rights, mm-hmm. and that memory of Kennedy continued to linger well beyond his assassination. And even though you know Lyndon Johnson was president and you know pushed through civil rights legislation. Uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, you know, housing, uh, housing and employment acts. You know, he doesn't really, he's not really remembered the same way as uh, as John F. Kennedy, and that's a fascinating phenomenon. But Kennedy, uh, you know, Mrs. Kennedy, uh, she wanted to use the Lincoln funeral as the model for her husband's mm-hmm. funeral, and mm-hmm. I think probably the the piece about the assassination is what she really wanted to do. That this was a president who was killed in the line of duty. And so as they were rushing to bring Kennedy back to the White House, Kennedy's body back to the White House, they were trying to make these arrangements very quickly for a state funeral that would in a way echo uh, Abraham Lincoln's funeral in in 1865. And it was highly uh, watched, televised. I mean, something like 90 to 95% of Americans watched coverage of the funeral Everybody remembers, you know, John Jr. saluting his father's casket. And uh, I mean, these are images that are burned into the American consciousness. Now, how long they'll stay there, we'll see, because I do think as we get further from the assassination, as we get further from, uh, you know, as, as that generation passes away in and of itself, we now have people who don't know who Kennedy is, uh, don't really know much about his presidency. They're not as emotionally invested in that historic moment. And I think what we're seeing now is Kennedy, because of new scholarship, new research, and also that detachment, is starting to slide a little bit in presidential rankings. Uh, you know, Historians are taking a harder look, and people just don't have the same connection with Kennedy as they did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I'll, I'll definitely say that as someone who's 36 years old, was not anywhere close to being alive for that historical moment. When I've read about JFK and LBJ, it, I've certainly been surprised, like, why is JFK the civil rights president of these two? What's going on here? So, yeah, very interesting. Um, and, and Lindsay, uh, tell us about Reagan. Yeah, so I think this chapter is one of the ones that surprised me the most, but also reading about that process um, and the and the process in terms of Reagan's funeral is is unusual and also sort of marks a new generation of of mourning. So 
in some ways, Reagan's is a little bit, Reagan's death and his passing is a little bit of an aberration in that everyone knew it was coming for a very long time. He was among the older presidents at the time. He had Alzheimer's after his time in office. He really was no longer in public. So that process of what the author Chester Patch describes as sort of the long goodbye was very much something that people were aware of. And yet something about it finally happening was so moving and so sad for so many people. And I think for a couple of reasons. One, it very much was a national process. So it went actually from coast to coast. uh, And this is ocean coast to coast. Uh, It was very well, it was very well choreographed so that the final funeral took place as the sun was setting over the vista at the presidential library. So it was sort of executed to perfection. It was really widely attended. Americans came out in droves to try to be a part of this process. But also, I think everyone kind of identified or felt deeply the relationship between the first lady and the president, between Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan. And the clear sorrow and sadness and loss that she was feeling made it a very personal experience in a way that I think some of these other ones, the people either didn't have access because technology didn't, you know, show it or the relationships just weren't as public or it weren't, it wasn't as obvious. So I think that's one of the things that struck me about this chapter and, and that particular funeral. What is unique about Reagan's or was unique at the time. And I think going forward has become a little bit more of a norm was, as I said, the sort of the national element, the role of technology, both in terms of the media, TV coverage, uh, you know, round the clock coverage for a couple of days, uh, but also transportation and all of these things. And we saw that again with George H.W. Bush. So I would suspect, depending on the president's wishes, I've heard that you know, Carter does not want a state funeral, but uh, for mm. presidents going forward, I sus- would suspect that some of these elements, whether it's technology, TV, now social media, things like that, would be more expected for some of these um, ceremonies going forward. Uh, last question before I wrap this up. What is the favorite thing you learned while working on this book? Favorite thing that I learned? Well, um, I guess for me, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about these funerals and what they mean, how they've changed over time. But then I started thinking more about what they will mean in the future. And I was, I kept coming back to this, I guess it's sort of like a revolutionary war ethos about our, is what we do too much? Is, is this more than we should be bestowing upon someone who is a former president of the United States, right? Uh, The idea of a state funeral for someone who is not a head of state, that to me is sort of paradoxical in a way. And, you you know, is that a reflection of that we have made the presidency more than it should be? Is that a reflection of uh, we believe that the presidency and all the benefits and privileges of it extend beyond their time in office? Uh, Or is it more just our own American form of hero worship that we've really latched onto presidents? And, uh, you know, this is where we seem to all resonate and, and, and 
convene together uh, the most amongst our elected officials. I'm not sure, but to me, I think it's dangerous. You know, I, I think it's something to think about the type of pomp and circumstance that we do, how much we do, and if we afford these things beyond people actually being in the office. Thief. Um, <laughs> no, Matt and I have talked about these things a lot, so we we share a lot of thoughts. I think the other the other element that I took away that I think I probably suspected, but it was really interesting to have it confirmed and to see the elements and the times and when this was the case, was we remember people, especially in the moment, especially right after a president dies, the American people are very selective intentionally about what they focus on and what they want to remember. And the commemoration that we see is not history. It's not fact. It is a a conscious choice to emphasize or to de-emphasize depending on what is happening in the moment, what they want to focus on, et cetera. So a great example is the Zachary Taylor chapter, which is written by Camille Davis. When Taylor died, he had, hadn't been in office for very long. His time in office was not particularly glorious. And so he died and the country really focused on his military service during the Mexican-American mm. War. Mm-hmm. Now, partly that's because that was probably the best thing he did, whereas his presidency was very lackluster. Yeah. But also, it reflected sort of a, a moment when the nation had been a little bit more unified or when he could be a unifying force. And when he died, Congress was trying to figure out what to do with the new territory that had come in yeah. from the Mexican-American War and were deeply divided on the yeah. slavery issue. And Taylor had done nothing to help resolve that issue. And so they didn't really want to focus on that his role in doing nothing to help resolve the issue, but instead instead wanted to focus on this more glorious aspect because it might bring people together. So that's just one example of many times where that choice is quite intentional and very revealing about what is happening in the nation. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us when we see these commemorations, whether they be in a funeral, whether they be a statue or a monument, that all of these things are choices and they're deliberate. They often take money and time and they reveal a lot about the American people and should be understood as such, but should not be confused with history. If you've enjoyed this interview with Lindsay and Matthew and want to learn more about the history of presidential mourning, please pick up their book, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture, and give them a follow, LM Chervinsky on Twitter or Lindsay Chervinsky on just about any other social platform you want to try. Uh, And Matthew, you can find him at Matt Costello PhD on Twitter, or you can check out some of his work at whitehousehistory.org. Thank you for your time, Lindsay and Matthew. Thanks so much for having us. This was really Thank fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast, and this is new. I've got a sub-stack you can subscribe to, the Abridged Presidential Newsletter. Find a link in the show description. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll interview historian H.W. Brands about his book, FDR, Traitor to His Class. Why was it that FDR, one of the richest men to become president, was the one who passed so much progressive legislation that helped the poor? 
That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. If you're hungry for more presidential history, I encourage you to check out the History of the Americans podcast, where I recently joined host Jack Henneman for a discussion that spanned the gamut of American presidential history. The episode is titled Sidebar, Kenny Ryan of the Abridged Presidential Histories podcast, and it's a pretty good chat. Check it out and give his show a listen. I think you will like it.